What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczek. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Jessica Sierk. Jessica is an assistant professor of education at St. Lawrence University, and today we're going to talk about her work on education, specifically her research on race and ethnicity. So one thing that I really like about Untenure Tracks is that we get to take these hard turns episode to episode. So last two weeks, we've been learning about the incel movement with Sarah Daly, and today we're talking about critical education research. So this is episode 19 of Untenure Tracks. researching the new Latino diaspora for about 11 years now. I started researching it when I was in undergrad, actually. Oh, wow. And I, I've tried to get away from that topic several times, and I just keep coming back to it. <laughs> so um, it's something I'm really passionate about because it's very personal to me because I grew up in what would be classified the new as the new Latino diaspora. So I grew up in Nebraska, okay. which is not a place that has historically like long time like Texas, California, Arizona areas where you would expect large Latino populations because they used to be in part at least Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um Nebraska is not one of those states, so and it's not like New York where you have New York City where there's a lot of like Puerto Ricans and stuff like that and Dominicans. Um, so I grew up in a town that while I was going to high school, well, going K through 12, really um, transitioned from being majority white um, when I started kindergarten to being um about 50% Latino when I graduated and the Latino population is still growing there. So um, that's kind of my main research focus has been areas that have that kind of demographic change happening. And so I graduated with my PhD um, a little over three years ago now. My dissertation was looking at um, two communities in Nebraska that have changing demographics um, that have brought a lot of Latino populations from Guatemala and Mexico into the school systems since I'm an education professor. Um, and so still to this day, I'm like kind of taking pieces of my dissertation, getting them published, getting them out. So I'm waiting right now to hear back about an article that um, looks at extracurricular activities uh-huh. And how um, how those changing demographics either mesh or don't mesh with our expectations for students with extracurricular activities. Okay, so um, explain that to me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. So um, 
a lot of the students, so, I mean, working at a university, you see it as well with, like, admissions and um, what gets counted as being, like, a well-rounded student because uh-huh. universities are all looking for that well-rounded student who has a resume full of, like, National Honor Society and um, state championship basketball and stuff like that. And there's a certain type of student that has the resume that those things are listed at. And it's um, sometimes to do with social class, like socioeconomic status, because, uh-huh. of course, sports cost money yeah. with equipment <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of students from like lower socioeconomic status that may have to do a part-time job to help their family make ends meet, or um, they have to do childcare for younger siblings. Um, and that stuff doesn't get counted um, when they go to apply to a college um, and try to get like scholarships and stuff. And another thing that I noticed, which was really um, more about like the Latino dynamic of these communities was being bilingual or trilingual and how that was not something that was seen as, as marketable as being um, say like a, for sport athlete or something like that. Uh-huh. So um, I had students who would often translate for their parents. And that's a skill set that is very marketable in like business, but um, I didn't see it mentioned by teachers as something that was a strength as much as like singing in the choir or being in future business leaders of America. <laughs> That's really surprising to me, just because I I live in a place where there's this this rising Latino population, and my wife works in um, the public schools where uh, there are there's nobody on staff who can speak Spanish. There are no yeah. teachers that speak Spanish, um, and so she has to communicate stuff to parents who um, like via their kids, and it's just massively frustrating <laughs> all around. I imagine. Right. Well, and if you think about like in the workplace like in the quote-unquote real world which got mentioned a lot in the interviews I did with school personnel in these schools um that like they were preparing these kids for the quote-unquote real world yeah and when I think about what um skills like transferable skills students learn from say um I don't know like playing on the basketball team which does have obvious advantages but then when i compare that to what students learn when they are translating at a hospital for their sick grandfather like when i like put those two skill sets and not that we should necessarily compare them but if we are to compare them like the traditionally valued basketball player i mean that's that's not necessarily as marketable of a skill in the workplace as speaking another language. So I think that like, it's kind of backwards how we are evaluating students with their extracurricular activities. Like I interviewed a student who had her, um, she was a certified nursing assistant. She got her CNA as part of like a high school class that was, I think, um, dual listed through a community college and was working as a CNA at, a local nursing home. But when teachers talked about 
her as a student, they didn't see that. They didn't see her as a strong student because she wasn't involved in school-sanctioned extracurricular activities. So, and I think what really strikes me about this is that it's rooted in this kind of ethnocentric, xenophobic, racist, classist discourse about how we talk about different student populations. So in and of itself, I think that we can all agree that speaking another language is a great skill, but the students who bring that skill are going to be immigrant students who are not white, who are not like really from like affluent families. So we talk about the things that they bring to the classroom in more of a deficit, using more of a deficit lens than actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I, do you think it's like a, um, maybe an, simultaneously a devaluing of the skills that the, that these students are, are good at as well as like an overvaluing of like the importance of traditional stuff. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like two sides of the same coin um, is what I see it as is that, and a lot of the work, like I had a, I had an article published earlier this year that looked at um, language ideologies in Uh these schools as well. So I'm coming at, um, coming at this project from like a variety of different lenses trying to see like what, cause it's very complex and that's like my students could tell you that one of the things that I am probably apt to say every class period is that complex problems require complex solutions and that every issue that we have in education is a complex problem. Yes. So, um, and I really, I come at that belief from the research that I've done. So I did, I had an article come out in June about the language ideologies um, that these schools have. Um, And now I am losing my train of thought. (laughs) So so tell me what a language ideology is. Okay, so um, just thoughts about language. So belief systems about language. So um, a lot of it was really like the the overvaluing of English and the devaluing of um, not only Spanish, but certain types of Spanish. Uh-huh. So, for example, there are all these heritage speakers um, of Spanish in these schools. But the Spanish that they speak are is Mexican Spanish. It's uh-huh. Guatemalan Spanish. It's not um, your typical, like, Spanish from Spain Spanish. Yes. So they don't feel welcome even in the Spanish classroom because it's not their Spanish, and they're told that their Spanish is bad. So I had several students even mention, when I asked them just a basic like demographic question of what languages do you speak fluently, and they were bilingual. Yeah. Like Their English was very good, their Spanish was very good, but they didn't see themselves as fully bilingual or fl- fully fluent in either of those languages, because both of those languages, they've been critiqued in, mm-hmm in the environment of the school. So that is based on like the school's language ideology of like what it means to be fluent in a language. Um, Okay. So would you say that it's like a fair parallel might be like students who's, so like we, we talk a lot about like writing quality, right? Like students who are, who are good writers or not. And, and students who might be 
how do I want to put this? Like the devaluation of AAVE in like yeah. higher education, right? So that I'm, that's kind of what I'm hearing, right? Like a, a similar, like you don't speak proper English right. based on how the academy defines what what proper English language is supposed to sound like, but right. in, in your own dialect are crafting like a very complex argument or story or whatever. Exactly. And so it's that, that kind of like, it's standard Spanish the same way that it's standard English. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so the thing about, so we looked at, we took, it was, I co-authored it with a professor that I had during my PhD. Um, I took her critical discourse analysis class and we got to be really close. And so we wrote this article together based on my data and we were looking at um, just kind of how how nuanced our our opinion, like how how our opinions come across in the nuances of how we talk about things. Mm. So, um, for example, there was a teacher that said, "I remember when we got our first Hispanic," uh-huh. and that's very. I mean, on the on its face, does it seem awful that you would say that? But when you think about, like, other things that you might say that you got your, like, well, I remember when we got our first TV. Yeah. Or, like, I remember when I got my first pet. Yep. It's, like, it's a devaluing of the person based on how you're speaking. And so that's kind of um, similar in that, like, you're, you're foregrounding certain things and backgrounding other things when you're talking in that way. So I see that as like similar to the extracurricular thing because we're, we're foregrounding certain skills and attributes and we're backgrounding others in how we talk about students' extracurricular participation. Okay. Um, so you had said a minute ago that complex problems have complex solutions, but to me, this seems like a very simple solution, like telling schools to stop being <laughs> jerks to people. Right? Uh, yeah. Which, I mean, you would think that that would be, yeah, a lot easier than, than it really is. Um, so I, I also have, a um, a book chapter in a book called the price of nice, uh-huh. um, which was edited by Angelina Castano. So I have a book chapter, I think I'm chapter three in that edited volume about, um, how niceness actually perpetuates inequity. And so a lot of times when I heard, um, teachers talking about their way of solving the issue, it was very much like, well, we teach people to be nice to each other. Uh-huh. Um, like we tolerate each other, we accept each other. And I tell my students this about like tolerance. Like we talk a lot about tolerance, acceptance, respect, those types of things in education. And I say like, you tolerate a bad smell. Like, (laughs) and I actually like, I really ham it up in the classroom and I pick on some student that I know can take it. And I'm like, okay, so say, Say, and I'm just going to use you because you're the only person in this conversation with me right now. Like, (laughs) say Andy just rips one in the middle of class. Like, you don't like the smell, (laughs) but, like, you know that you're stuck in this room for the next hour and a half. So you tolerate it. Like, you 
you don't want it to happen again. You don't really want him here, but like he's here. So you, and you can't do anything about it. And so I kind of draw that analogy. So the students realize that like tolerance is not the answer and even acceptance. Like at some point, like you accept the things that you cannot change Uh and you move on, but like still like acceptance is not the answer. And we talk about respect and like, you're not ever going to go so far as to respect somebody's smelliness, but like, (laughs) uh, and you're definitely not going to affirm it. Um, So we talk about like the different levels of how we treat each other. Yeah. How like niceness really stops at like a pretty low level. Niceness is like the bare minimum. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I'm nice to a lot of people that I know nothing about i don't really care about them after the fact of our like after we interact so it's like asking students to go beyond that to what um i use sonia nieto's work and she has affirmation solidarity and critique as like the utmost level of how we can interact with each other and especially with like with respect to multicultural education in schools and so um trying to get them to realize just how difficult it is to move schools in that direction. So I'm actually working on a chapter for an edited volume where I'm going to take five different, I guess what you would call interventions, um, and trying to put them into conversation with each other to see how they both reinforce and amplify each other. Because I think that when we, like, so I've been advocating for dual language programs. Uh And that's one intervention. But I also think it's important that we look at critical indigeneity. So, like, we have these students who are coming from Guatemala who not only speak Spanish that would be addressed in a dual language program with Spanish and English, but they also speak Cuenhoval which is an indigenous language. Uh-huh. So the dual language program addresses part of their identity because they're a Spanish speaker, but it doesn't address the fact that they are seen as less than other Spanish speakers because of their indigenous background. Yeah. So like putting those two interventions into conversation is kind of that like complex solution. And then when you think about, okay, it's not just about language, It's also about immigration status. And so thinking about like border studies. Uh So really critiquing the notion of a border and why we have borders and how we deal with borders is not something that high schools typically do. (laughs) So like talking to them about that so that like the Mexican students who are demeaning the Guatemalan students realize that that's a border that is socially constructed and doesn't have meaning until we put meaning on it. And then the students who were born in the U S that are demeaning the Mexican students and the Guatemalan students see that that is a social construction as well. Um, like that's where that like complex solution part really comes into play. I'm all in favor of teaching high school students that borders are stupid. Yes. (laughs) Borders, (laughs) borders, like so I taught a revolutions class and I'm I'm really kind of disappointed in myself that I didn't get to the a point in the semester where I could be like 
what's the worst idea <laughs> that we've that we've had? Is it the internet? <laughs> is it is it the combustion engine? <laughs> is it borders? <laughs> Just to see like what what the reaction would be from I mean my student population is is very conservative um okay. in spite of having this like real massive growth in the Hispanic population um a lot of students from the Dominican Republic um so uh and then adding on like the indigeneity thing right like that's I I can't imagine how frustrating those conversations must be um dealing with like school administrators on the ground yeah. Well, and it's interesting because so I'm putting together like a model with, uh-huh. okay, so those were three. So dual language, critical Latinx indigeneity, border studies and geopolitics, um, intergroup dialogue, and what is the fifth thing? Oh, racial literacy. So those are the five interventions that I'm putting together into this model. Yeah. And I'm actually going to be going back to my sites in May to collect more data, my dissertation sites, because uh-huh. I just can't let it go. I love my dissertation so much. <laughs> um, it is like I've tried researching other things in the past three years, and nothing sparks quite as much joy to use like uh, Marie Kondo um, <laughs> lingo. Um, so I've kind of been Marie Kondoing my research agenda and that like if it doesn't spark joy, it's like a one and done publication. <laughs> and I'm just trying to get back to something that sparks as much joy um, as my dissertation. And not that it was a particularly joyful subject yeah. because a lot of my dissertation is talking about racism. Yeah. So it's not joyful, but the idea that like the little piece of the universe that I'm researching could potentially change for the better is joyful to me, I guess. So in a way, yeah, it sparks joy. Um, but yeah, so I'll be going back and collecting more data and I'm hoping to have my kind of intervention model pretty well sought out and polished by the time I do more interviews with my student participants. Mm-hmm. and potentially some of the school personnel. But um, I just actually wrote my interview questions to send through IRB this week. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm going to actually show them my model and ask the students, like, what do you think? What needs to add? What needs added? What needs taken away? What makes sense? What doesn't? Uh-huh. Um, how would your high school experience be different had this been a part of it how would your life after high school be different if this would have been part of your k-12 curriculum um and then hopefully asking some of the teachers like how would this intervention package change your daily routines as a teacher as a counselor as an administrator um and getting their their thoughts on it because i mean it's it's a big ask to, I mean, I've even met with superintendents to ask them if they would consider just doing dual language, uh-huh. which the way you start a dual language program is from kindergarten up. Yeah. So essentially I've asked them like turn one of your kindergarten classes, which I mean, one of the districts I think has at least 12 kindergarten classes. Uh-huh. So like give me one 
that you are willing to hire a bilingual teacher who will do like half the day in English, half the day in Spanish. And like, even that has been met with complete resistance. So why, why do you think it, it's been resisted so, so strongly? Well, so I happen to know that I, I have like some inside sources in this district (laughs) that, I mean, teachers are told not to give support in any other language than English. Like, and it's not just a Spanish speaking population. There's also, um, students who speak like Aromo and, um, students who speak Somali and students who speak a whole bunch of languages because they have, um, an African refugee population as well. Um, and I think it's, just this idea that it's this myth that's been propagated that you learn a different language best by, I don't know, like immersion is good, I guess. Like I would love, I'm currently trying to learn Spanish. Mm -hmm. I would love to just go to Spain, to Argentina, to wherever and live there and be immersed in the language. And that's great. But, like, I would also still be relying on my knowledge of English. And especially students who come, like, maybe in, like, second grade and don't have a firm, firm grasp of their first language. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to build up their their level of their first language in order for them to be able to adequately learn a second language. Like, languages build on each other. So my knowledge of English and knowing like what a verb is and how verbs work and what an adjective does and stuff like that helps me when I go into a Spanish classroom to learn about like, I don't know, the past tense, like they inform each other. Right. So I think that there's this, this myth that Spanish is going to be a distraction from them learning English instead of the reality, which is that Spanish can actually help them learn English. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's So I think it's just, it's just not knowing how second language acquisition or language acquisition writ large works. So in your experience, this might sound like a rude question, maybe. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Uh, in your experience, do you find that schools maybe underestimate the intelligence of students in general that like like they think kids are dumber than they really are a hundred percent and i think that is even more so the case when those students are not white middle class students so i mean and i i wrote about this in a different article i don't know i think it's actually a book chapter that has yet to come out that we I don't know. So there was a student who I called Sergio. Um, He was like kind of talked about as like this, just like nobody student. Like he was seen as like really needy and almost like manipulative. Yeah. And so he had all this like negativity put on him 
by the by the teachers and by his peers. He was, I mean, he lived in a trailer. Um, I mean, he was definitely like of a lower socioeconomic status. He was Mexican. Um, he was not like the greatest student when you think about how we define great students. Yeah. But when when I was talking to him, especially during his first semester of college, um, he was he's a survivor. He's a brilliant. He's he's brilliant. Like mm-hmm. he his house or his trailer had burnt down the week before he was supposed to start college, and this is a year after it had been impacted by a tornado. Uh He was alone in the trailer when the tornado came through and it like decimated small towns. Yeah. See, and a trailer is not a great place to be in a tornado, (laughs) but he pulled the mattress off the bed and held it over himself while laying on the floor. Yeah. And came through unscathed. Wow. Like, I don't know that many like 17 year olds who would think to do that. Yeah. Like, and then so the trailer gets once again decimated from a fire this time yeah he goes to college with nothing and he advocates for himself so skillfully that he ends up with a book scholarship that he like never applied for yeah and like has like professors and admin like admin at the university like giving him like money for clothes and yeah. all this stuff. Like, and I mean, working with a college age population now at a university, like I don't see a lot of my like white middle-class students being able to advocate for themselves in that way. Oh, so the, the <laughs> fact that the matter is like, he's a lot smarter than his student or his um, teachers gave him credit for, but it's not in the way that we traditionally think about like, book smarts and getting homework and on time and all of these constructs that we've put on students to label them successful or not. Yeah. So in, in, um, the implementation of your interventions, does that, so I don't know really a lot about like education stuff. Um, so does this include like changing or suggestions for changes to the curricula as well? Yeah. So especially like, I was a high school math teacher mm-hmm. um, before I went back for my PhD, but I found myself getting, I don't know that I wanted to be a math teacher. I like probably would have been happier as like a social studies teacher. <laughs> and so I can't I find imagine myself, why you would say that. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. It's, it's like, I don't do anything mathy anymore. Um, but I mean, I think that the math curriculum has a lot to offer as well. In terms of, like, I mean, when I was a high school math teacher, I inherited this project in Algebra 2 that was to have students um, do, like, linear regressions with, um, like, state populations. Uh So you have a student who has the data for the population of Alaska for the last, like, century by decade for, like, the census data or whatever. And they'd plot the points using Excel and they'd do the line of best fit for like linear, quadratic, exponential, et cetera, and find which model best matched the data and then make a prediction for what the population will be in like 50 years. Yeah. And then research like what 
like if the population is declining, why it's declining. If it's increasing, why it's increasing. I got this, I inherited this project and I'm like, this is so stupid. Like who cares? Like, I really don't know too many students who care about the population of a state that they've never been to, that they may never go to. And like, who, like, there's just no real consequence to their life to research that. Yeah. So I, um, use that as an example. Um, and I mean, I didn't teach high school math long enough to really do a lot with the curriculum myself. But I use that as an example of, like, what other data sets could we use? Like, the only requirement for the data set for that project is that there's multiple data points across a time span. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, what if we look at refugee resettlement? Like, so say you live in a town or a city that resettles a lot of refugees from Somalia. Like we can look at how many um, refugees have like left Somalia over a period of time. We can plot those points, we can do the regression line, and then we can research what's going on in Somalia to like warrant more refugees leaving the country. Yeah. And that has consequences for <laughs> the way we think about our peers. Yeah. So we can start thinking about like, oh wait, like you're not a bad person. Like you're actually like you're fleeing violence. And that gives me like a level of understanding and might even lead to some of that solidarity I mentioned earlier where I might care why you're here a little bit more. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that too. Like what, what do you see as the pathway to like instilling affirmation and solidarity <laughs> among yeah. among high school students that may not at least stereotypically you know it, it may not be like a strong point for kids yeah exactly i mean those teenage years i mean the way the brain works in those years does not necessarily lend itself well to that all the time um i think that's where the intergroup dialogue piece of the interventions comes into play uh-huh because I think that if if students had the opportunity to talk about their self and listen to others talk about, like, what they're going through. I mean, it's a tumultuous time in your life. Like, we've all been there, and we know that usually when there's, like, a fight in the hallway, it's not just kids being buttheads. Yeah. Like, there's something going on that, and th- this goes for, like, everything. Like, I tried to, like, this is one of the biggest lessons I've learned as an educator is that, like, when a kid isn't doing their homework, has their head down, comes late to class, isn't paying attention, like, it's not about you as the teacher. Like, something's going on in that kid's life that needs addressed. Mm-hmm. And until you address that root cause, you're going to see the same behaviors happening. And so I think that like intergroup dialogue and you see this with um, schools that use restorative justice and like circles really addresses those root causes in ways that other interventions don't. So I think if we 
implemented, like whether it's restorative justice or intergroup dialogue, like some of those more communication-based interventions rather than like discipline and punishment. Like I think we'd see a lot more of that affirmation, solidarity and critique because I think that like once you're in conversation with somebody, you can kind of like, I don't want to say call out because I don't really like call out culture because yeah. I think it pushes people out. I would say like we can foster that like call in mm-hmm. culture of like, Hey, what you said was really like racist and it, it made me feel really bad about myself and now I don't trust you. And like, we need to do something to rebuild that trust. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about could also be applied at the university level. Oh, 100%. (laughs) To like just rethinking the curriculum and rethinking like what, what does a liberal arts education look like and what's it, what purpose does it serve heading into 2020, you know, and you know, I have, I have faculty at my university that I feel like are stuck in this time capsule where it's still 1970. (laughs) Yeah. And it's hard to break out of like your, your way of doing things, but I think it's necessary. Yeah. I mean, if necessary to serve the kids, right. And necessary for institutions to continue to survive. Well, and also, like, necessary for faculty to keep wanting to show up because I feel like there's a lot in, (laughs) there's a lot in, like, departments, like, some departments are so dysfunctional and it's not serving the students well, it's not serving the faculty well, and I mean, I know so many faculty that love what they teach and they love what they research but are driven out of institutions of higher ed because of just not feeling appreciated, not feeling heard. (laughs) Are are we going to talk more about my career? Because this feels like... (laughs) It's like my semester. My semester summarized. (laughs) Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had over the last 19 episodes are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come online, come on the show and hype your stuff, um, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of Our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.